0: And welcome to Lost in Science for another week of science on your radio. My name is Claire and we're so glad to be chatting science with you this week, as we always do. And I have with me this week the wonderful Chris and the wonderful Stu. Hello.
1: Hello, the wonderful Claire. Hello. Hello.
0: Hello. I, um, I take it you're ready to chat some science, oh, yeah. Chris. Yep, yep. What do you have for us this week?
1: So, I think we've noticed that uh, we've covered a lot of topics multiple times lately. <laughs> um, don't worry, I'm not doing room temperature superconductors again. Um, You're
0: not? Are you sure?
1: I'm pretty sure. Um, you know, okay, like we, okay. we've done a lot about yeah, room temperature superconductors, AI, etc., etc. One thing's
0: let's not forget cat
1: taste. One thing that we uh, have talked about a few times is life on other worlds. I suppose. Oh, so that's absolutely. That's yeah. what I'm going to be talking about um, today. Um, yeah. Now I'm not talking the.
0: No spoiler alerts. Keep keep listening if you if you want to know whether there is life
1: on other planets. Yeah,
2: don't give it away.
1: No, I, I I'll <laughs> don't just, give it away. I may need some more details of what I'm going to be actually talking about here. I'm not talking about the alien mummies you might have seen on the news the, that were presented to the the Mexican Congress.
2: Oh, it turns out... No, I saw a meme. Turns out it was cake. Yeah, was that's just, right. It was just cake.
1: No, it was um, <laughs> presented by someone who's described commonly as a grifter who's purveyed UFO hoaxes before. Um, plus, they did look very fake, I thought. Anyway. I'm also not talking about the NASA's recently released p- report on unidentified anomalous phenomena, which... Uh not much to say there. They basically said we can't say that UAPs are extraterrestrial, but you know, oh, it's plausible. Mm. So, See, I, I would
2: say, I would say it's possible. Whether it's plausible, that that's giving it that's that's stretching the friendship, I think.
1: The language they used in the report honestly sounded a little bit like they they talked about how, well, anything that would visit Earth has to pass through the solar system. Uh and therefore they went on this kind of To connect the dots, thing which I think they're trying to say that basically, if you believe there is life on other planets out there somewhere, um, then you know space is big and surely it could make it to Earth. But it sounded like they were saying, um, Give us more money so we can study the solar system. Um, But anyway, Um, no, I said I'm going to be talking about uh, recent news reports you might have seen that got a bit of attention. Of uh the j w Space Telescope analyzing the composition of the atmosphere of an exoplanet and possibly finding signs of life, uh, wow, look, it was a bit of an exaggerated headline, I've gotta say, so I will just tamp down the enthusiasm a little bit. um but the actual work is fascinating. <laughs> this is possibly a vast ocean world that they have discovered, so I'm going to be looking at the uh yeah, what they've actually reported. Um, so
0: it's either Waterworld or Avatar. I'm loving this. Great. I'll just stop the <laughs> stop your right okay.
1: There. Thank you, thank you.
2: So is it, yeah, is it is it going to be is it going to be uh, Kevin Costner or Sam?
0: What's his name? Sam Avatar guy. Yeah, Sam Worthington. 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 Worthington.
2: Kevin Costner or Sam Worthington? Who are we going to find yep. living on another planet?
0: <laughs> That's right. And Stu, do you have something? intergalactic to share or otherwise?
2: Um, Well, I do have a story that's, I guess, related to alien life forms (laughs) arriving on flying craft. No, it's actually just something that annoyed me when I was flying back from my holiday the other week. Um,
1: uh-huh
2: so you know the reason stew's I
1: beef yeah don't show yeah. don't show off there stew don't like just just casually drop <laughs> in oh, i was flying internationally
2: um, interesting that you refer to my beef because it is something that's related to beef it's, it's a quarantine thing i did just come back from indonesia Indonesia's in the middle of a foot and mouth outbreak has been since last year sometime and there's you know there's measures being taken uh about that and i just was going to jump into why it was on my mind and and you know what it actually means and, mm. and what is the problem with that and why you know we actually do have we're pretty lucky to have such a good quarantine system in Australia as well but it's just something that that sort of came up while I was traveling obviously I haven't been out of the country for quite some time for various reasons um, mainly that you weren't allowed to travel anywhere for quite some time I just want to talk a little bit about why why Indonesia's having a problem and why that is something we have to pay attention to as well being our near neighbor
0: absolutely so that is uh looking for life on the outside and also keeping life out of australia well protecting
2: life on the inside of our borders maybe
0: that sounds better as well anyway on with the show
1: science, novel and innovative concepts occasionally arise from sudden left-field inspiration.
0: Nothing shocks me. I'm a scientist.
1: But I'd rather be remembered for my own small contributions to science. As a scientist, I don't want to
0: prejudice my experiment.
2: I'll let you know in the morning. I am a scientist! I think they're scientists. I bring scientists, you bring a rock star. Across Australia on the community radio network, you are listening to Lost in Science.
1: Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. Now, if you are a fan of either Star Trek or Star Wars, or both, we don't discriminate. um, They, but it doesn't matter because they both apparently have instruments that can detect life on other planets. Um, You know, the Enterprise is always scanning for life forms. When they approach another planet, um, I think remember. Then in, 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 in the Empire Strikes Back, Luke Skywalker approaches Dagobah and says, <laughs> "I'm getting massive life form readings down there." Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And on, on, on oh, st- what's going on in Dagobah? On uh, on Star <laughs> Trek, they're always they're always going down to the surface of M-class planets, which mm, is not sure what the that ones. Is. I think well, it's ones that humans can walk around on. I believe is uh, the yeah. definition. <laughs>
1: will will look we'll return to that um uh, obliquely anyway look but look the reality is that it's more difficult in in real life especially when the planets are a very very long way away uh, and this is the case with the recent news reports from the JWST the new space telescope that f- found possible signs of life on an exoplanet and so i thought i would dig into what this was all about now first some some bare facts here um, we're talking about a planet called k two eighteen 18 b The K stands for Kepler. This is the Kepler mission for finding exoplanets that discovered this particular planet in the year 2015. Uh, the B indicates that it is a planet that is orbiting around a star called k two eighteen. 18 also known as EPIC-201912552, if you're playing at home. Catchy name. Yep. Now, K218 is a red dwarf star, which is actually a kind of, I think, an M-class star is how they talk about that as Mm. well. Um, On the main sequence, I think the M stands for main sequence. So uh, the M enters there. But in this case, it's a red dwarf star, and it's 124 light years away. Now, red dwarfs are, well, in our local galactic neighbourhood, they are the most common type of star, but they are also the smallest type of star so they're basically there are no red dwarf stars that can be seen with the naked eye they're so faint that you need a telescope to see them even though there's a lot of them out there Um, so this particular one like i said is 124 light years away Uh, this planet that's orbiting it um because the stars are so much smaller the solar systems tend to be a lot smaller and more compact the planets can be quite large this one is it's quite large it's 8.6 times the mass of earth but it orbits its star at a distance of only um, a sixth of the distance from the Earth to the Sun. That's 0.16 astronomical units, they call it. So it is very close to its its star um, and it orbits its every 33 days. Earth days, I should say.
2: So the, the a year on that planet is 33 days, so basically a month.
1: Yeah, in our time, yeah. 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 They compare that with the closest planet to our sun, which is Mercury. Mercury is at 0.4 ast- astronomical units, so quite a bit further out from from the sun, and it orbits. Its orbit is 88 days. So this one is right. a lot larger than Earth, but it is a lot closer to its star than even Mercury is to our sun. But because the star is so faint, this means it can still be in the habitable zone, habitable mm. zone for the star. Um, so. Also, this one is particularly in it's a nice position that when it passes in front of its star, you basically can see it doing its little transit and so that you can see the light that goes through its atmosphere and then from the, the way the light is filtered through the atmosphere, this is the idea, you can look at the spectrum of absorption and work out what is the molecular composition of the atmosphere and this is what we're talking about.
0: That's wow, great. really That's cool. very clever.
1: That is pretty cool.
0: That's, um, that's a quite a distance. That's not just... Well you know, looking looking up. Well, this is the
1: thing. So this is a very that's very important, Claire. This is hundred and twenty four light years away. So uh it's actually really difficult to do. Um, so everything that I'm about to say has to be taken with a grain of salt. There's a lot of stuff that we don't know for certain. Okay?
0: So you're saying the the measurements because it's so far away, don't have a high level of accuracy or as high as maybe you know we would like
1: well okay to put it into context um so we'll get to the to what is the actual kind of signs of life they found which is a particular molecule but remember that recent years we've had supposed discoveries of life signature molecules on mars and on venus which have often turned out not to be the case and they're very close Mm. to us mars and venus we get a really good look at them this is 124 light years away so let's not assume that we know exactly what's going on there is what i'm saying but yeah, like, so this actually, this is something the JWST has looked at. Now, it has actually been observed before by the Hubble Space Telescope, the, the uh, atmosphere of it. And those experiments, they concluded that it had a mostly hydrogen atmosphere with some water vapour in it. And so they concluded that it was what they call a mini-Neptune. So it's basically a gas planet, but smaller than Neptune. So Neptune is about twice as massive as this particular planet. Um. The alternative scenario generally is that is what we would call a super Earth. So a rocky planet like Earth, but again, much bigger than, than the Earth. So those are the two main um, hypotheses. But recently, people have suggested that it could be what they call a high planet. Um, and high is a word they made up that is a portmanteau. It's a combination of the words hydrogen and ocean. So <laughs> it's a planet that has an atmosphere of hydrogen over a large ocean of water. And this, of course, is exciting because with that much water, then it could perhaps support life. But it's still a controversial idea because it has to be fairly close to its star. And with a hydrogen atmosphere, it can get a very high greenhouse effect that could evaporate the ocean. Some models suggested that the ocean would not stick around. It would just evaporate. Um, So there is still debate over whether high-sean worlds could actually exist. Um, But the scientists doing this experiment wanted to test whether this was a high-sean world. Now the um, like I said, the Hubble Space Telescope had seen it. Their data wasn't very conclusive because they could only see a small part of the spectrum. But the JWST is designed for infrared light, which is really good at um, molecular compositions. So they found, can fairly clear signals that the atmosphere contains, as well as hydrogen, methane, and carbon dioxide. They didn't find any water vapor, really, um, and they reckon it's because the the methane spectrum kind of crosses over with the the water spectrum. So again mm. Hubble was only looking at a small part of the spectrum, but they're looking at the full thing they say, no, we don't really see water, we see um yeah, methane and carbon dioxide.
2: So is that is that so the methane's kind of masking any water that might be there? Is that what that means or could be?
1: No, it means that they basically the Hubble mistook the methane for water is what they're suggesting. Ah, okay. Right. Yeah. Um, They also found, I reckon, indications that there are clouds which could perhaps reflect enough sunlight to stop the ocean from evaporating, which furthers their theory about this being a Hycean world. But the most exciting observation is this supposed hint of life. And this is in the form of a molecule called dimethyl sulfide. Now, this is a chemical that on Earth is produced by marine algae or phytoplankton. Um, It's a sulfur compound It has a Cabbage-like smell But it is also Sometimes called The smell of the sea It's one of the most Dominant smells From the sea That's a sulfurous smell Um, So yeah They've seen What they reckon Signs of this Dimethyl sulfide In the spectrum But The trouble is It's a very faint signal And um, It's not entirely clear That they have Definitely Detected this molecule So To put the spectrum together, they have to combine the results of various instruments, um, and they have a few different methods of doing that. Um, it could be at a significance of 2.4 standard deviations. It could be not observed at all, depending on how they crunch the numbers. In fact, what they call the most conservative mm. way of calculating it, basically, it's not really an observation of dimethyl sulfide. So this is why they're saying it's, it's hints of this chemical, because they, haven't, they can't really say they've seen it. Um, However, the concentration, if they have seen it, the concentration could be as high as 35 parts per million, which, I don't know where that sounds like a lot to you, but on Earth, it's normally counted in parts per trillion. So if it is there, then it would be at very large quantities, which would supposedly be the result of a very large biomass in this massive ocean world. But again, we don't know for certain it's there. Uh, And they haven't actually released their raw data either. Uh, so other people haven't had the chance to sort of crunch the numbers themselves and find out how robust these calculations are. Um, but look, the fact that this this uh, planet orbits a star every 33 days, then there will be more observations. Uh, some future observations are going to concentrate on particular parts of the spectrum that have a better sign of dimethyl sulfide. So they're hopefully they're going to be uh, getting some better data on where this particular chemical is there. But yeah, look, it is a bit hard to be sure of something that is 124 light years away. So again, you know, we can't quite be sure of Venus and Mars. So we need a bit more data before we conclusively say something about it. I suppose the most exciting thing for me is that this is kind of a proof of concept they can do these calculations. This is one of the most exciting parts of the JWST mission that it could examine the atmospheres of exoplanets. Now, it would have been amazing if they found proof of life on their first planet that they examined. Um, so I don't think we should assume that that's what they found. But look, it's really interesting that they are able to get these kind of calculations and potentially find these, yeah, these massive ocean worlds that um, potentially could have a, uh, a Kevin Costner or a, a Sam Worthington floating around on them. Congratulations on your discovery, which may well prove to be among the most significant in the history of science. I cannot accept half-baked theories that sell newspapers. I'm I'm a scientist. Who are you who are so wise in the ways of science? A most distinguished scientist
2: whose name we know even in the wild of Transylvania. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to Lost in Science. Now, I just uh, travelled back from Bali a little while ago, which is why I wasn't on the show the last few weeks, uh, and I had a relatively uneventful flight. Um, I was quite le- Oh,
0: I mean, but you had a good trip, right, Steve? Oh, of course.
2: Of
1: did you watch course. a movie? Yeah.
2: Um, I was watching old episodes of The Outer Limits and, <laughs> um, and episodes <laughs> of the Peter Serafinowicz show on my tablet. So, yes, it was quite entertaining. They don't have movies on planes anymore. There's no there's way to put them. You've got to take your own entertainment. Um, you can use their Wi-Fi, but the streaming was terrible. So we're not quite living in the future yet. Um, but basically, look, when I, when I landed, I was quietly waiting in my seat after we landed because I am not one of those people who jumps up immediately when the seatbelt sign goes off. Because if I have checked baggage you're just rushing to wait around for your checked baggage to come out usually. So I just sit there and wait until it's easy to get out and I'm not stressed or rushing or anything. It's really nice. Uh, But anyway, as I was waiting, there was an announcement on the plane about a biosecurity measure in place currently at Australian International airports for all planes landing from Indonesia. And I could hear a fellow passenger ranting behind me saying the Australian government's telling us what to do and we haven't even got off the plane yet. And I said, shut up, because it was about 12.30 in the morning. Uh, It was a long flight. Um, But anyway, he didn't keep talking on that (laughs) tangent. But um, I just don't really like people complaining about things like quarantine measures because they are kind of important and they protect a lot of things that, I personally and lots of other people like about Australia that make it a good place to live.
1: So yelling shut up at people does work on a plane?
2: Look, I think it was the safest place to do it because the hosties all really liked me and it was really, (laughs) you know, there's security (laughs) people there and anyway. Hey,
0: hey, look, it's yelling shut up on a plane and then following up with a story on Exactly, exactly. That's pretty good. That's pretty
1: good. It's
2: win-win. If, if you're out there listening, quarantine complainy guy, <laughs> I'm talking about you.
0: That's um,
2: right. Now, look, the current biosecurity risk that they were warning us about, basically, uh, involving Indonesia, is, is a disease called foot-and-mouth disease, which affects cloven-hooved animals, which includes sheep, cattle, pigs, goats, even alpacas and llamas and camels, um, but obviously not horses because they are not cloven hooved animals, so they're not affected.
1: What about now, the devil?
2: Yeah, look, I don't. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, um, maybe okay. he does. He does have the legs of a goat sometimes.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, Surely he might. Yeah, maybe it affects his legs and potentially his mouth. Hard to say. Um. But uh, so the yeah the announcement itself was actually pretty mild in tone. It was just advising people. This is this literally what it said is, hey, there's foot and mouth in Indonesia. We've got a mat at the airport that you have to walk over, which will disinfect your shoes as you walk over it. No biggie. I didn't think it was, you know, that I was losing any freedoms. That, that doesn't
0: doesn't sound that onerous. No,
2: no. Um, also that you'd have to declare any foodstuffs and meat products at customs, which is basically standard for any international flight coming into Australia. There's no... Nothing unusual about that at all. Now, foot and mouth is a very serious viral animal disease, usually not transmissible to humans, but it can happen. It has occasionally happened that people have contracted it. Um, It's just not particularly dangerous for us, although I did find there was a case from the 1870s, I think, where two very young children died from foot and mouth from drinking contaminated milk. But mm. but rare enough that not even last century was there any cases I could find where it had actually affected people to that degree. But it does affect animals quite severely. Hasn't been detected in Australia in over a century, actually 130 years since the last detection, which is you know, before last century as well. So again, we've kept it under control pretty well. But it is present in over 70 other countries. So it's quite common in the world to have foot and mouth around. As I said, the big problems it causes are in animal health and particularly in agricultural livestock. It can be passed between animals as airborne particles. So it's quite contagious if it gets into a population and and the way animals are moved around, especially in trucks and that sort of thing in close proximity and where they're fed and all sorts of things like that can lead to rapid spreading of the disease. So the virus itself can be carried in breath, saliva, mucus, milk, and feces, and can be transmitted four days before any symptoms appear in the infected animal. So it can be, before you even know it's there, it can be spreading amongst the, the, the herd, I suppose. Yeah. Um, now, as well as that, it can be spread on wool, hair, grass, or straw. It can be spread by the wind. Can be spread by mud or manure sticking to footwear, clothing, livestock equipment, or vehicle tyres. It can be spread in meat products. Um, Not that there's much risk of, as I said, humans don't tend to get infected with this virus. Uh, But it is why in Australia you can't feed swill containing meat to pigs because they made, ah. they've may they just banned it. They just said, don't feed pigs any meat products from any source mm. because it just keeps it safer that way. Now, interestingly, some animals can recover from the worst symptoms of the virus but continue to carry it and retain a replicating amount of virus in their airways, which can be transmitted to other animals. Oh, wow. So they sort of recover, but they're actually still carrying it. So cattle and sheep and goats can become carriers in this way, but pigs apparently don't develop this type of subclinical infection. So for some reason, but pigs also are much bigger spreaders. they amplify the virus. So when they're actually sick, mm. they produce thousands of times more virus particles than other animals. So they're really the worst ones to kind of get it in a way. Um, so there's seven commonly encountered serotypes or versions of the virus, which apparently split off from a common ancestor sometime in the 16th century, according to genetic analysis Of viral RNA. Um, And these seven serotypes are in seven different pools of the disease around the world. And there's maps you can look at. There's, you know, pools in South Africa and Europe and Asia and Americas as well. Um, But so back to people traveling, people traveling to agricultural areas where animals are farmed can easily bring the virus into Australia by a number of means. And that's the main focus of the quarantine efforts for travelers entering the country, especially by plane because you don't know where they've been, you don't also know where they're going. People, you know, tra- travelling home to country areas are probably more of a risk of transmission. The disease kills around 2 to 5% of infected adult animals and much higher rates of juvenile animals. So depending on the time of year, you can get very high death rates. Uh, but it also causes lameness because uh, they get blistering around the feet and hooves as a symptom which then they can't walk and they can't feed and they can't drink and they can't run away from predators and things, but it also leads to other health problems as well, obviously. So it's a pretty serious uh, disease for animals and an outbreak in Australia, it's been estimated would cost over $80 billion in direct costs and lost productivity. um, Wow. With ongoing costs in eradication and treatment of the disease in livestock adding to that figure. So, in some areas of the world, there is, a, there is basically a fixed ongoing cost of preventing outbreaks of foot and mouth in areas where it's common. We would have to take that on board if it came into Australia and the cost of everything about raising animals would go up and therefore the cost of all animal products would go up as well. So in the end, you know, I kind of think it's really not a huge deal to be asked to walk over a slightly wet rubber mat covered in disinfectant and declare any agricultural products on arrival in the country. Um, I think if anyone feels like they're having their freedom infringed by showing their government-issued passports at government-run airports around the country to keep people and animals in Australia healthy and disease-free, maybe they should just stay home. that is all we have time for this week on lost in science thank you for joining us in getting lost if you have any questions or suggestions for the team get in touch with us by email we are lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on the ubiquitous facebook Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the community radio network. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost 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 in Science.